So Matthew chapter 22, we'll be reading verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready, so come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how, do you, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Planning a wedding is difficult. I remember uh, when my wife Stephanie and I were planning our wedding. um, By the time we got to the day, it was just like, we just want to get this over with. I mean, it started off kind of fun. It's like, okay, what decorations are we going to use? Where is it going to be? And by the end, there's just so many details that just got overwhelming. And one of the biggest things that was kind of hard to navigate was where we were going to have the reception. We knew we were going to have the, the, the actual wedding here at the church, but where were we going to have the, the reception? And there were a lot of different factors that you know, were involved in that decision, but the one that was kind of at the top was the price because it's really expensive to have a reception anywhere, especially you, know, you go to a restaurant and you're looking at like $50 a head minimum, um, sometimes upwards of $120 a head. It's a lot of money. And then after that, you know, you pick a place and then you have to tell the caterer uh, or the restaurant, you have to tell them how many people are going to come. And oftentimes, you know, some places have a little bit of leeway, but a lot of places it's like if you tell them this number of people are coming, that's how many you pay for. It doesn't matter who shows up or who doesn't shows up, show up, that's who you're paying for. Now, thankfully for us, you know, we had, you know, really nice reasonable people who came to our wedding and, you know, those who said, you know, those who couldn't come, they indicated they couldn't come. And, and those who said they could come actually showed up, at least for the most part. I don't remember anybody that didn't show up. Maybe there was a couple. Um, but it's not like that for everyone. Um, there was somebody on TikTok a few years ago who uh, posted this picture of an empty uh, wedding reception and the hashtag 88 people invited, less than 40 showed up. And it was really depressing for them that they had to kind of change around what they were doing and they weren't able to do some things that they were hoping to do because they got a lot less people than they were expecting and and they didn't really know why. All these people, 88 said they were coming, less than 40 showed up. There's a couple by the name of Doug and Dedra Simmons and they had a similar experience. They did a destination wedding in Jamaica and uh, they reached out to their guests over and over again. They said at least four times they reached out to their guests. And each time the guests confirmed, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming. And then it got to the wedding day, 
and there were a number of people that didn't show up, and they were paying $120 per person for those people who didn't show up. So they got a little bit frustrated. You can understand why, you know, you're spending all that money, it's your big day, and you have people that, you know, said they were coming, but then don't even text or call or anything, and then you're out that $120 per person. And so they decided they were going to do something kind of interesting. They made a, uh, an invoice for those people. An invoice for uh, each couple was charged $240, $120 per head. And then they posted that invoice on Facebook, and they had a little note at the bottom and said, because you didn't have the decency to call or text or let us know that you weren't coming or something like that. Now, you can understand their frustration. It's a little bold, brash thing to do. We might, you know, we might not do the same thing, but like, we can understand why there's that kind of frustration because it's your big day, you know, the biggest day of your life, and you put all this money, put this, all this effort into planning it, and then you have people that say, I'm coming, and don't even have the decency to tell you they're not coming, and you're out that $120. And for them, it wasn't even about the money. It was about the principle that they had been hurt by these people who had said these things. In this passage, we're looking at... Uh, a story that Jesus tells, a parable about a wedding. And as we look at the story, we see kind of different people's responses to this wedding invitation that Jesus gives. And I think it provides us with a framework for how people respond to Jesus and how we respond to Jesus. Uh, first, a little introduction about weddings in the ancient world. When it came to weddings in the ancient world, basically, if you were invited to a wedding, you went to the wedding. Now, we live in a different culture where we have a lot of competing obligations or responsibilities. And so if someone invited us to a wedding, you know, if, you know, maybe we don't really particularly care for them, you know, we might decide not to go. We might have some excuse why we don't want to go. Or maybe, you know, we have a work thing that, that's come up. There's no way we could go. Uh, maybe, you know, we're going on vacation. So there's a lot of different reasons why, you know, valid reasons why we might not actually attend a wedding. In that day and age, they didn't have these completing, competing obligations and responsibilities. Um, Family, community was really important. It wasn't like they were going on, you know, trips to Disney World. It wasn't like they had sporting events that they were a part of and their kids were a part of. It wasn't like they had these complex jobs where they couldn't take off. If they weren't coming to a wedding, there was really no excuse. There was no excuse for not coming to a wedding. If you're invited to a wedding, even if you don't like the person, it was expected you were going to go to the wedding. The only exception of why you might not go to a wedding is if you really, really don't respect the people who are getting married. And you chose not to go there as a sign of, like, disrespecting them. In this particular case, the person who's throwing the wedding is described as being the king. Again, I think the king is representing God and the son representing Christ. And so it was a king. And if you're going to disrespect someone, you wouldn't want to disrespect the king. And yet that's exactly what they do in this passage and these, invite, these invitees have the audacity to say no, not even just to a, a regular wedding, but to the king's invitation to his son's wedding ceremony. Now, a couple other things about this story. Now, when we have, you know, a, a wedding, someone has a wedding, usually there's a pretty defined timetable for when it's going to happen. So it's like, okay, the wedding's going to happen at 3 o'clock, the reception's going to happen at 5 you know, and then maybe it goes to 10 or 11 or whatever time it ends. 
but it's very clear when it's going to start, and, and you know, it's kind of clear it's going to end by the end of the night. In that culture, it was a little bit different. It was a little bit more open-ended. There was a very complex uh, rituals that were involved in preparing for a wedding, and weddings often lasted, the reception lasted several days. And so it wasn't always clear when the wedding was going to start because it was like whenever, you know, the calf was ready that they were killing, whenever the preparations are made, that's when the wedding celebration is going to start. And so oftentimes there would be kind of an initial invitation of like, okay, this, this couple is getting married um, and, you know, maybe a general time when, you know, when it was going to be. But then when the preparations were going to, to, to were ready, then the servants would go and tell people, okay, the preparations are ready, the wedding is about to start. And so in this particular passage, uh, these people most likely have already received the initial invitation, and they probably already responded positively to the invitation. And this is representing the religious leaders who, in theory, respond positively to the invitation to enter the kingdom of God. So they've, they've kind of put their yes on the table, They've RSVP'd, so to speak, but now the preparations are ready, and servants send out the message, it's time, and yet they choose not to come. They say no to the invitation of the, king, of the marriage of the king's son. Again, notice a few things. Number one, how offensive this would have been. The preparations have already been made. They've, in essence, already said yes. They have no excuse not to come. All of these things, these lavish, you know, arrangements have been made. The fattened calf has been killed, and yet they choose not to come. So it would have been incredibly offensive. Second, the king is inviting them to something that's fundamentally good. Now we think about, you know, killing a fatted calf, and it, you know, kind of goes by us. But in our culture, we have a lot of meat. And so you can go to, you know, McDonald's or Burger King, get a burger for like a couple dollars. Back then, meat was a delicacy. It was something that you didn't get that often. It was like a special occasion celebration kind of thing, especially the fatted calf. And so the invitation is to like a really, really good meal. It would be like if you were invited to a wedding and it was at your very, you know, most favorite restaurant and they were going to be serving your favorite meal. I mean, it's hard to say no to that. And that's in essence what the invitation is. It's an invitation to something that's fundamentally good. It'd be hard to say no, and yet that's what they do. And so again, this, these invitations and the people's responses kind of highlight how people respond to Jesus' invitation and the invitation to come into the kingdom of God. And, and so the first response to Jesus is rejection. Some people are rejectors. The conduct of these uh, invitees indicates that they're engaging in an open rebellion against the king. They're not you know, hiding the fact that they're rebelling. You know, again, it's offensive, it's disrespectful, but they don't care. Now, some of them do this very openly in that they're violent. Uh, it says that some of these people uh, in the text uh, seized the servants of the kings, treated them shamefully, and even killed them. I mean, how bold, how brazen, how little do they think of the king that they take his servants and put them to death? And so some respond violently to uh, the, the invitation to, to come to the feast. And in our day and age, there's some that are pretty clear that, you know, they're violent against the teachings of Christ. And so they're, you know, these are people that are like, you know, the militant atheists, people who, you know, don't 
like the Bible, have th- you know, something against the Bible, have something against God. They're not afraid to tell anybody about it. And so the response is rejection, and it's kind of an open, violent rejection to the gospel. And so that's pretty clear. But then the second group of, uh, of rejectors are, are not so obvious. They reject the invitation for a different reason. They reject it because they're indifferent to the, the invitation. And I think this is the biggest way that people often reject Jesus in our culture. It's not by becoming a militant atheist. It's not by being diametrically opposed to the teachings of Christ. It's by a lack of interest. Uh, One scholar says that, you know, puts it bluntly in summarizing this, this, this statement. He says, they just don't care about the will of God. They just don't care about the will of God. They have no interest. They're not opposed to it. They just have no interest. They have other things to do. It says in the text, one went to his farm and another to his business. Many people in our culture think a relationship with God is a good thing, maybe even an important thing, but something that they're not really interested in being a part of. Uh, This is one of the biggest surprises that I had when I was planting this church over 10 years ago, I remember I was thinking like that there'd be a lot of people who were just opposed to the teachings of Christ and, and were like, you know, no, I don't want to accept Christ because, you know, this and this and this, I don't agree with this in the Bible or I don't believe in the Bible at all. And I expected it to be like open, violent confrontation like, you know, the first group. But what I discovered, it wasn't for the most part that open, violent, you know, you know uh, response against the gospel. It was more like, oh, that's nice. That's great. I mean, that's an awesome thing to do. And you'd have people that were like, hey, I love what you're doing. I mean, this is awesome. You're planning a church and reaching out to the community. And, you know, that area really needs a church. And uh, that's good that you're teaching the Bible. And it, it's awesome. And I'd be like, well, you know, do you want to be a part of that? They're like, well, you know, I you know, I, I like to sleep in on Sunday mornings, and, you know, sometimes I have, you know, other things I got to do on Sunday mornings, and, um, you know, yeah, I'll p- probably come check it out sometime, but, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm, it's awesome what you're doing. I remember one particular lady who, uh, prior to planning the church for months, she kept telling me, like, how excited she was uh, that I was starting this church, and how she was going to be there, and attending, and uh, serving, and, and being a part of it, and then the day of the launch came, and she, she wasn't there. And I saw her, you know, several times after that. And every time I saw her, she's like, oh, I got to make it out there. You know, that's awesome that you're planted this church. It's, it's great. I, I got to make it out to church. And, you know, it turned into months, turned into years. It got to a point where she just stopped saying anything at all because everyone knew she didn't have any intention of actually coming. But sometimes it's like we think that rejecting Jesus is just that, that violent response. But oftentimes it's also indifference. And I think that when it comes to our relationship with Christ and our relationship with, you know, the church, but also with community, not just, you know, the church, but, you know, community, any community, any form, I think it doesn't really fit into our cultural values. In other words, when it comes to, like, what our culture says is important, there's two things. Number one is accomplishing, working. So, you know, we devote our energies to uh, our work where we're going to get a paycheck, where we're maybe going to advance in our career, and we're like, okay, that's important. we got to provide for our families. 
So that's the one thing we say is important. And then the second thing we say is important is enjoyment, leisure activities. And so when it comes to community, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, it doesn't really fit into those two categories perfectly. I mean, it's, it's not something that's like we're accomplishing something, like getting something done that we're going to get some, you know, an immediate payoff from you know, reading our Bible or for going to church or engaging with other believers. And sometimes, you know, of course, we want it to be something that we enjoy, but sometimes it's not. Like sometimes we come to church and it's not like, oh, I, I left there feeling great about myself. It's like I left feeling uh, convicted about the, the areas of my life that I need to change. And so we have these kind of two things like, okay, I want to accomplish, I want to enjoy, and then our relationship with God is, is not really either one. It's not accomplishing, but it's not all joy, it's not all fun, and so many people just kind of put it by the wayside. There was an article that was written by a man by the name of Jake Meter, and he was um, summarizing a recent book on this phenomenon called The Great Deturching. And he puts it very aptly this way. He says, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. And so we don't often devote ourselves to our relationship with God or relationship to uh, other believers because we don't see the value. It's never, there's no immediate payoff. And, and it's true in that like, sometimes you'll come to church and you'll get something out of it and be like, leave on a high, and other times it'll be like, I mean, I didn't get anything out of that. Or same thing with our relationship with God. Sometimes we'll read the Bible and, and, you know, we'll just sense the presence of God and God speaking through his word. And maybe we have a worship song on and it just feels like Jesus is sitting right next to us. And other times we'll read the Bible and it's just like we don't feel anything at all. And the problem is sometimes we were like, put it by the wayside because we don't get that immediate payoff. But the truth is, when we do so, we're missing out on an incredible joy that we can't find anywhere else. And, and that's part of the reason why we see an epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of uh, mental health disorders. Of course, not the only reason, but we lost our sense of community because we're focusing on accomplishing or enjoying. And community isn't about accomplishing. It's not about having fun. It's about being, being with God, being with other people. Not trying to perform, not trying to accomplish something in that relationship, not just doing it when it's fun, but because of who we are. And so we come to church not because it's a fun thing to do and we don't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. We come to church because that's who we are. We're the body of Christ. And we love one another and we love God. We spend time with God not because, hey, like I'm looking for like the most incredible spiritual insight, like I need the, the most incredible inspiration this morning. We spend time with Christ because I'm a son, I'm a daughter of Christ, and I have a relationship with him, and I want to know him more. And so we persevere in those things, and when we do persevere in those things, we can find that joy, deep, lasting joy, that goes beyond accomplishing or simply enjoying. 
And so, some, so, so we can reject Jesus by either being violently opposed to him or being indifferent to the things of Christ. But then there's another uh, group that I think is represented in this story, and it's represented by one individual, and this group is the pretenders. The text says that after the initial invitees refuse, the master goes out and he gathers all different types of people, both bad and good, and every, all these different people come to the wedding. And then in the course of the wedding ceremony, it is discovered that there's someone that doesn't have wedding clothes on. And the master of the wedding goes and, and says, like, how did you get in here? How did you get past the porters? And he's speechless, doesn't say anything. And then they take him, bind him, throw him out of the wedding. And it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, I've always read this story, and I'm like, I kind of feel bad for this guy. I mean, he, he, you know, he's like a wedding crasher. He, like, he desperately wants to be there, but he doesn't belong there. And so I've always like, felt bad, like, uh, like, why couldn't he just like, have the right clothes? Like, why doesn't he have the right clothes? But the reality is, when we look at this text and look at the, the, the word for wedding clothes, it's not a special kind of clothing. It wasn't like having a wedding dress or like, you know, the best, you know, suit that you could, that money could buy. It's referring to basically clean white clothes, like clothes that just about everyone would have. And so when he's found in here in, in, in the wedding ceremony not having the wedding clothes on, it's most likely not that he didn't have the wedding clothes. It's most likely not that he didn't have the wedding clothes. I think there's probably a different reason. So let's say you were invited to a wedding, and you know, you're told you know, several months in advance, the wedding day comes, and you decide that you're going to show up to that wedding in your gym clothes. You just go to the gym, work out, and then just decide you're going to show up to the wedding. Why would you do that? Not because you don't have clothes to wear. The only reason that you would do something like that is if you really didn't respect the people that were getting married. If you really didn't respect the people who were getting married, that's the only reason that you wouldn't put on the right clothes to go to the wedding, assuming that you had them. And so we see in this, in this group that's represented by this man, the pretenders, we see that there's kind of a different kind of rejection. I mean, the other people uh, who were invited, they say outrightly, okay, we're not going, some violently, some like, okay, we don't care, we're going to have a farm, have a business. But this man, he responds positively to the invitation, so much so that he goes into the wedding, and yet he doesn't have the right clothes. And really, it's almost more egregious for him than it is for those who outrightly reject the invitation. Because he's making the effort to go there to disrespect the host. Today, these people are people who come into the church and maybe do all the religious things, but their hearts are not clean. These are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who played the part. And that's why Jesus had the, the harshest things to say about them, because they were the people who looked like they were responding to the invitation. They're like, oh yeah, we have it all together but their hearts are broken. Their hearts are wicked. Matthew 7, 15 to 20 says this. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So some respond to the invitation by pretending to be guests who are honoring the king, who are pretending to be enjoying the feast, but inwardly their hearts are dark. And then there's a final group in this passage that respond positively to the invitation, and they are the honored guests. And the first thing we need to know about the honored guests is they're people who are marked by repentance. As we talked about the, the importance of repentance last week, they recognize that they need something different. They recognize that the clothes that they have on are not sufficient, and so they change their clothes. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, we realize that we don't deserve to enter into God's feast, and we repent, and he clothes us with his righteousness, and that's first positionally so that we can enter into heaven, but also he begins to transform our hearts. And so we turn to him and realize that our clothing that we're wearing is not enough, that we need him in our lives. We also recognize that the invitation itself is a gift that we don't deserve to enter into the feast. We recognize that these, these individuals, they weren't even initially invited. And so it's all by the grace of the master. But also finally, and tragically, the text tells us that this is the path that the least number of people choose. It says many are called, but few are chosen. I believe here what Jesus is saying is that many are invited to the feast, but few are chosen to stay because few people recognize their need for a new robe, for wedding clothes to put on. Few respond positively to that invitation. And then we see the consequences. You know, we see these three different groups of people, the rejectors, the pretenders, and then the honor guests. And then we see the consequences of these. For the rejectors, the consequences, destruction. It says in the text um, that the, the master would come and basically destroy their village. And in the concept, context that Jesus is speaking of, he's literally speaking of the fact that the city of Jerusalem, the, um, the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And so literally, for those religious leaders' establishment who had said no to that invitation, that temple, that, thing, that centerpiece of who they were religiously is going to be destroyed in 70 AD very violently. And so for those who reject Christ, whether it's through violent, outright opposition or through indifference, um, the ultimate judgment for that is, is destruction. And so if we haven't had a relationship with Christ, if we reject him, rejected him, that's kind of the end. And then we see the, the consequence for pretending to uh, maybe play the part, to, to, to do the right things, but not have a heart that's been changed by Jesus. It says in the text that the pretender is bound hand and foot, cast into the other darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then finally, the honored guest, the, the guest who humbly acknowledges he doesn't deserve the invitation acknowledges that he does need to change his clothes. What's the consequence? The consequence is joy. He gets to enjoy the feast of the master, the feast of the king. He gets to bask in this, this beautiful ceremony that is going on. And so the first kind of application for us is that if we, haven't had a, if we don't have a relationship with Christ, whether we've rejected him or maybe we played the part kind of pretending, 
the end doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for us. But there's always hope. We can turn to him. We can find joy in the rest of the, the feast of the master. And so if you are here and never had a relationship with Jesus, today's the day to turn to him. And don't just assume that you have a relationship with him. If, if there's no produce, fruit that's produced in your life, if, if God isn't changing you, if you don't have a true commitment to Christ, don't assume that you know him. Because if we know him, he's going to change us. We're not saved by our fruit, but when we know him, he produces fruit in our life. So that's the first application. But all those of us look at this passage and are like, okay, like it looks like a salvation message. And I've known Jesus for a long time. I love Jesus. I want to honor Jesus. Like what application does this have for me? Well, if that's you, uh, that's great, and I hope that's true of you. But I think this passage also reminds us that our choices matter. And it has a lot to say about how we relate to God and even to other believers. For example, there are some people who might be labeled alcoholics. If you were an alcoholic, say you drank constantly every day to the point of you know, getting inebriated every day, you know, people would say, okay, you're an alcoholic. But there's other people who maybe wouldn't be defined as an alcoholic. Say you, uh, maybe you get drunk, you know, get really plastered once a month. Now, you might not say that person is an alcoholic, but they still have, you know, kind of a not great relationship with alcohol. And I think the same thing can be true for us as believers. You know, we might say, okay, I'm not a rejecter, but there's areas of my life where I'm putting a stiff arm, a stiff arm mark to God and I'm saying, not there. Like, I, I want to obey you, but like not with my money or not with my sexuality or not with how I spend my time. And, and so while, you know, our hearts, you know, we, for the most part, we want to honor Jesus, there's areas where we're just saying, no, not there. Or maybe there's this pull of, of the world where it's like, like, we just don't focus on the things that matter. We don't focus on a relationship with God or community with other people because we're focusing on accomplishing or enjoying. And we feel that pull of the world. And we know, you know, we want to honor Christ. We want to spend time with him. But the world is kind of pulling us apart. And maybe this passage is a reminder that we need to turn back to our first love. And this is a reminder that for those of us who are believers, okay, so we're not going to be eternally, you know, destroyed. There's, you know, the, for the, those who reject Jesus, ultimately there's an end of destruction. But for those of us who are believers, we're not going to be ultimately destroyed. But God could exercise his firm hand of discipline on us. If we're saying no to him in areas of our life, if we're indifferent to the things of God, sometimes his heavy hand of discipline comes upon us. Because we're his kids. He loves us. And he's going to do whatever it takes to bring us on the path of bringing him glory and us joy. In the same way, we might not be a pretender, but we might have a problem of kind of playing the part in certain areas of our lives. Maybe we're doing a lot of good things, but there are certain areas of our life where we're kind of hiding behind a mask and don't want to change. And if that's us, then the consequence is the same as for the pretenders in the passage, exclusion, but not necessarily exclusion from God eternally, but maybe it's a loss of fellowship with God. Maybe when we just kind of go through the motions and play the part and, and God isn't changing the, the inward depths of who we are, 
maybe we lose that fellowship with God. Like experientially, it's not like that he casts us aside, but we just don't feel his presence. We don't hear his voice like we would if we're following him with our hearts. And, and I think we just need to be careful. And I think this passage reminds us that little acts of disobedience don't, don't turn into something big. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in my office here at the church, and I heard this pretty loud, like, smashing sound, like something had fallen. And I didn't really think anything of it. I just kind of, like, whatever I was doing, I must have been pretty engrossed in it. So I'm like, okay, whatever, something fell. And then later I went and, you know, I've done a lot of things around the church, went almost every place in the church. I didn't find anything. But then somebody was cleaning the church, and I was here, and they said, hey, um, do you know what's in, on the floor in the ladies' bathroom? And I go down in the ladies' bathroom, and there's this ginormous mirror. It's like three foot by two foot that is smashed on the ground. That's the sound that I heard. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm like, well, I think I put it up years ago. Maybe I didn't put it up right. You know, maybe the, 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 something fell out of the wall or whatnot. But as I looked closer, I, I discovered that it wasn't that I put it up wrong. It's that the, the anchors that were in the actual mirror had been completely dislodged, had just ripped right out. Now, what was weird about this was that this wasn't an area where people like, you know, kids could be playing around or grabbing on it or hold, hanging on it or whatever. Like, this was up high. No one was really touching this. And so over time, apparently, gravity had just kind of worked on this to the point where, you know, little by little, that anchor got pulled out to the point where it fell over and crashed. And I think if we're not careful in our own lives, even as believers, little acts of disobedience can turn into big acts of disobedience. And little acts of disobedience can eventually lead to the severe discipline of God. And when he, do, he applies that discipline to us, it's never pleasant, but he'll do anything to bring us back. Finally, this story, again, it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells about, you know, and it's an illustration to, to talk about, you know, the invitation to the kingdom of God, invitation to the feast. But when it comes to parables, it's not like every single detail corresponds to every area of life. And so Jesus is trying to prove a point here. But there's something that he doesn't reveal to the, the people who are, he's talking to that we know to be true. When he's talking, he's talking about this invitation, and that's kind of the point. But when we look at the story and talk about, think about the invitation to the wedding, what's remarkable is that we're not invited to be guests at the wedding. As believers in Jesus, we're invited to be the bride. How much more grace is that? I mean, what we need is, is not just a clean pair of clothes to put on. It's like we need a wedding dress. I mean, how incredible, how much grace is that, that the master invites us to the wedding ceremony of his son, and he invites us to be the bride. The scripture says that we're the bride of Christ. How much grace is that? How much joy can we find in that, that he loved us so much that even 
while we were yet sinners, even while we were wayward, he died for us and invites us to his wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, to be his bride. So as believers, let's not reject when Christ speaks. Let's have hearts that are open to hear from him. Let's not grow indifferent to the things of God and feel this pull of the world that's telling us to accomplish or enjoy. But let's be Let's pursue that relationship with God. Let's not just go through the motions and pretend. Think that we have it all together. Pretend like we don't need grace. But let's enjoy the Savior. Let's live lives of repentance. Live lives of obedience. And enjoy the feast that God has prepared for us in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that this story illustrates how we might respond to the invitation. But Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much to die for us, that you invite us into your family, that you invite us to this marriage supper as the bride of Christ. Lord, help us to never move beyond that. Help us to never forget your grace. Lord, help us never to treat that flippantly. Lord, help us to respond to your invitation to love and know you with obedience. Not rejecting, not pretending, but in all things repenting and finding joy in who you are. Lord, help our eyes to be fixed on you. Help our hearts to be steadfast in our love for you. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that you transform us more and more into the image of your Son. In Christ's name I pray, amen.